0: Hi, and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, members of our family support group share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics through interviews, sharing their stories, and more. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Stephanie with uh, the Magdalen House, and I am here for a special edition of Hope for the Family. Um, We have the Director of Development. Is that your title? Yeah. the director of development on, uh, Kate Dorf, and she's going to share her story, um, of experience, strength, and hope with being a family member to an an alcoholic. So Kate, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. First of all, I'm so humbled and excited to be here. I just never thought I'd get to have such a fantastic platform to tell my story. So thank y'all for doing this. And, um, Yes, I'm Kate Dorf, and I have the remarkable privilege of serving as the Director of Development at the Magdalen House. Um, I can't believe that I've been here almost a year, but served on the board for four years before that, and um, I'm just totally sold into the mission. So, yeah.
0: So good. Well, I forgot to tell you all who are listening that Kate is one of the best people I've ever met. Oh my gosh, Uh, I'm so serious. She's so like kind and down to earth and just like really herself. And with her being on the board and me just being this, you know, like, Stop. I don't know. Uh, I was so intimidated. Oh my you know? gosh. <laughs> well, I'm not because you're intimidating, but because I was intimidated. Um, and then whenever I got to know you, it's just so, like all of those fears just like fell, you know? And so um, I'm just so honored to be able to do this and to be able to work with you and, and just watch how talented you are. Um, It's so, it's so amazing. So um, let's get into your story. Do you want to give us a little bit of background? Maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up, um, all of that good stuff.
1: Sure. I wish I had some awesome childhood story to tell, but I don't. It, I grew up in Midland, Texas. I'm like an eighth-generation Texan, um, so clearly I would never leave. My parents were happily married, and um, I just had a wonderful upbringing. You know, did all the little things that girls do. I had um, a younger sister who's two and a half years younger than me, and I can remember Barbies and gosh, just all the things girls do dance classes. And I loved school and, um, always felt very loved and safe growing up. Um, and you know, my family member was my father and I can remember from, you know, as we start to get older, I can remember specific instances where we would be in a social place. And I always felt a little uncomfortable when he was having a drink and i know that I could ever really put my finger on it um I just knew something was different he'd say something or mom would have to drive home or whatever that looked like so I, I was always maybe just somewhat aware that there was a problem but never the extent of what ended up happening so I don't know does that give you a good answer
0: sure so did he drink your entire uh childhood
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, But you know, I always thought he was a normal drinker. I can remember him coming home and I'm looking at his blue chair right now in my office and he would come home and sit in his blue chair and have a scotch, you know, and that was just normal. And I can remember, (laughs) this is so bad, playing with um, Crown Royal purple bags, thinking they were really pretty. So that was just something that was always around. My mom didn't drink much at all. I mean, I don't, I think I can probably count on the both hands, how many times I remember seeing her have a glass of wine. So I just thought it was just dad was a drinker, a normal drinker. Um, You know, we were active in our church. My mom was always a little more um, invested in it than he was, but I can remember sitting in church with him and the pew having Tic Tacs, you know, which now is kind of funny that it was Tic Tacs because now I kind of know why, but, you know, it just never was weird. It was there, but it wasn't weird and it wasn't concerning.
0: Was there a time that it did become concerning?
1: Yeah. So I think as I got older, things started, I don't know if it's just you get older and you start to become a little more acutely aware of your surroundings and maybe you're able to articulate what's going on better. But really when I started to be in junior high, so probably around 13, there was starting to be tension in the house and I can remember several conversations of between my parents of my mom just thinking he drank too much, you know, um, he'd spend his afternoons at Midland country club and would come home and he was always different than the way he left. But again, as a child, you kind of pick up on those things, maybe intuitively, but you don't really understand exactly what it is. Um, so as that kind of progressed, his drinking just got, I think, to the point where my mom couldn't handle it anymore and they separated. And I was a freshman in high school and then it just started to go downhill after that. So I I do know that um, when he was gone, one of the situations was if he was to come back, he couldn't drink. And I remember my mom being out of town. I was 14 and I found him with the drink and I knew, okay, what do I do? Do I tell my mom that I caught him doing something that was like a prerequisite to their reconciliation or do I hold on to it? And I told her. And I can remember feeling like I betrayed him, which I think is a pretty deep feeling for any child to have about their parent and things just progressed from there. And he ended up having an affair and then they divorced when I was 16. So, um, yeah.
0: Did he know that you told your mom?
1: Yes, he did. He knew that I caught him. Yeah. And I think he was pretty angry for a long time.
0: So did anything happen with, with that or?
1: No, I don't remember the specifics of what, anything happening after that. I just remember after that instance, that was kind of the pivotal moment when things started to go really down South. I can remember one specific time I was probably 17. My sister got really sick, stomach issues. Anyway, we ended up in the emergency room and he walked in and couldn't stand up. And I remember thinking, what is happening here? You just went from, you know, my dad who was fun loving and having dinner with us and driving around in his truck to a man who couldn't stand up and had to be escorted out by security when your daughter's sick. It was very confusing. And I really remember starting this pattern of um, just being angry and not really knowing why and thinking, is it my fault? Did I do something wrong? I can remember we had a boyfriend in high school who I dated for like four years. I don't think he ever got his name right. And I can remember thinking like, do you just not love me enough to even learn my boyfriend's name, you know, and it, it was just this constant cycle of me and I must not be worth it. The drink means more. And that's a really hard place to be. in, I think whether you're gosh, grown or a teenager or a child. Um, and I think it's a very common feeling. Um, so you talked
0: have... about um, your dad, like being fun, loving, driving around in a truck. So what was he like if he wasn't
1: drunk? So he, that's kind of the interesting part. I think he was more fun when he was drunk. Definitely. You know, he grew up in a small town. He had two older brothers. They were all best friends. And a real, my grandmother was so fun. I'm named after her, Kate. But I think he started just from stories I've heard, you know, his relationship with alcohol started very young. And I think my mom would even say when he was in college, she knew there was, he just drank different, right? But you're young and you you're in college and everybody kind of does it. So it's like, oh, maybe, you know, things change. But he played professional football. Um, he was a big man. He was six four, I think probably 220 and really fast. And he played on the line um, and ended up at several different teams, but played at Green Bay under Dan Devine. And um, I think that was a really big part of his struggle was, I think he probably had some front of sort of brain damage that of course nobody knew about at the time. When he was drunk, he was happy and fun. And when he wasn't, he was more mellow and turned inward, if that makes sense. So it was always better when he had a drink, but then it never was a drink. Right. It always turned into something more, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. I definitely understand that as being a recovered alcoholic myself. Yeah. So you were talking about that you guys were active in the church. Now I know like this can happen a lot for, in you know, with me too, I'll, my stepdad in particular, like he would really like drag me to church. I mean, I would go willingly because I was like sure. dead, right? Inside, you know, but like dragging me to church, like thinking like that, that would
1: solve save your problem. Yeah. yeah.
0: And just wanting to get me really involved. And, um, and a lot of times it would just be like, I remember one time, um, it was after, a night at the movie theater. Okay. Who gets blacked out at a movie theater? Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Drunks do. Yeah.
0: Yes. And, um, and just the chaos and everything that happened the night before waking up with extreme remorse and going into church and just like praying and crying and never wanting to do it again. And then constantly doing it again. Did your dad ever like try to seek help in the church or anything like that?
1: No, I think the church for him was a place of shame. And I know we'll go into that, but um, first of all, I think he grew up in a era where we don't talk about our problems and men are supposed to be strong and non-vulnerable. Non-vulner- and I think the church didn't do much for him except make him feel bad. I think he believed in God. I know he did. Um, but I think he lacked a very, I I honestly think he lacked the inability to have a spiritual relationship of any kind because he felt so ashamed. And I know as y'all talk about all the time in your recovery journey, like shame is really the problem, right? Yeah. So he, no, he never, I don't ever remember him ever admitting that he had a problem to me. I think there were moments throughout our journey where he thought that he would consider it. Um, but I never outwardly heard him ever say, I'm an alcoholic. So I think the church was more of a place of um, pain for him. So sad. Yeah, it is.
0: So what happened after your parents divorced
1: for the final time? So when they divorced, my dad left um, and his drinking went steadily downhill after that. I mean, just, well, I should say, I guess it went uphill, but you know, I went off to college um, and there were several instances where I'd get a call and he, I mean, it was kind of a joke with my sister and I, we knew like, if we'd call him after three o'clock, we could pretty much ask him for anything. And he wouldn't remember the next day and just say, yes, <laughs> that sounds so terrible. But that, you know, 18 year olds, like you're hurting and you're going to get whatever you can from him, what you need. But mostly in terms of myself, I remember just being really angry with him and always really nervous. So college events, dad's weekend he would come and he would be drunk before we went to dinner, you know, but I think his default was drunk. So it became less and less about seeing him for who he was. And it was always just, that's the way he lived. I'm trying to think like a specific example I can give you. There were so many, but one thing I do think he, the way I felt at the time was um, he just didn't love us enough. You know, if you could put the, if he loved his daughters enough and he knew he was going to lose them, why wouldn't he stop drinking? Um, I remember my wedding, we had to put one of my uncles on him just to make sure that he was okay. And he fell and broke his tooth and then had a wreck trying to get to the dentist that we had set up. And it was, you know, He didn't make it. So all of my little wedding pictures, he's got this big fat chip tooth, you know, and I can remember thinking like, man, you can't even fix your tooth to get on my wedding day for pictures. Like, I think it was just a really built up process of, of not trusting someone and not feeling loved enough. One of the biggest examples I give is he always felt very uncomfortable around my mother afterward. And so it was very tense situation for me when they would both be, have to be together at some family event. Um, and I had a graduation, um, high school graduation and he just left. He didn't come speak to me afterward. I saw him get up and leave. And I can remember thinking, what kind of dad doesn't come and talk to their daughter after her high school graduation. Furthermore, when I graduated like number five in my class or something, you know, I worked my tail end off and like, you can't even say you're proud.
0: Yeah.
1: One thing I will say is I always knew he loved me, but I but I always felt like he loved something else more. And I didn't know what that was. Now looking back on it, I was feeling like he loved the drink more, right? And that it was, I can, gosh, I can tell you how many times I've said this, that it's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. Like he could choose it. He could choose to put it down. He could choose me over that. He could choose to make better decisions. And like, that's um, something I feel like is very common with people who don't understand the disease is that it's not a choice. But when you're in the throes of it and you're not educated on what that means, it seems like a choice
0: mm-hmm. and yeah. that's hard. Definitely. Now there's like a common theme where you you say that like, you didn't feel loved. This could just be me projecting, but do you feel like you were in a place where you were like trying to um, get his approval or get his love? Absolutely.
1: In any- oh yeah. Yes. I mean, it, that was constant, you know, but the interesting part too, I think is it was juxtaposed with, I'm, I am I want to do whatever I can to hurt him because I'm so hurt, right? I'm angry. Not that I could do much to hurt him, but you know what I mean? Like he ended up marrying a woman who had some pretty severe mental health issues and she brought her young son into this really, I mean, a drunk man's home to live. And I can remember thinking like, man, he must really be. There's something going on there that I can't even, I don't understand it because I don't understand who, you know, subjects someone else's child to this. And then the, and the thing is, I think too, in his head, he thought he was doing the right thing and doing something good for this kid. Cause again, I had this silly notion. I mean, I just, this is how I felt about him. I thought he was a bad person. I thought he made choices that were wrong and he'd rather sit at a bar with his friends and drink instead of showing up to take my sister and I to eat on the one night a week that we had scheduled to eat dinner. And that's a really hard thing, I think, to understand, not only as a child, but just as somebody who loves a family member who's struggling with it. It's, it's, it's so common and really not talked about enough, you know?
0: And it's really, it's, it's really sad. I'm, I mean, I'm lucky in the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm sober now and, you know, my right. daughter is, um, you know, she was about seven when I got sober and I from about two to about seven is when I was really in my addiction. And then like probably around five is whenever it got really bad, but I still remember like the missed visits that I had with her because sure. I you know, got too drunk or one of the things that I'll never Ever forget is she would call me and say, Mommy, every single day I go to bed and I wish upon a shooting star that when you'll wake up, you'll be here and you're never here. And like hearing those things, you know. And so I can definitely, like, I have a lot of guilt still for that. Um, And so I can imagine how he must have been feeling too. Cause it's, it is, it's a, re- it's a really hard place to be as a child. You know, like I, like I always, I understand that, like, I know that I was sick. My daughter understands that I was sick now, but at the time it's right. didn't hurt any less because I was sick.
1: That's <laughs> right. It would just be the same. I mean, you know, I've used the example of if he had had cancer, I'd, I would have felt sad and it would have been painful because he had cancer. Right. Mm-hmm. But in this particular illness, you know, like they say, instead of it rallying people, it pushes people away. And when you don't understand that on the onset, the pain is amplified, I think. And the issues around self-worth are amplified. And um, it becomes about you instead of the other person, which is a really hard thing to understand. You know, your perspective is skewed because you don't understand the illness. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, Now, I remember... There is one point where he did go to treatment. Can you mm-hmm. tell me about that?
1: Yeah, so the first time I was so excited. I would um, just graduated from A&M and had gotten a job at the Department of Defense in DC. And the nature of my position, they the military actually moved me up there. So I had to drive, to San Angelo, I think it was San Angelo, and check in with the base there. And then I had to go on to College Station to get all my stuff. And he was supposed to meet me in San Angelo. Well, it was nine o'clock that night and he wasn't there. And I thought, this is so weird. Called him, didn't answer. Woke up, went ahead and just was pissed. Called my mom, was like, I guess I'm just going to get this U-Haul by myself. At that point, I was like, now you're not helping me. I'm so mad at you. I'll figure it out. So got a U-Haul myself, drove it up there. My boyfriend, now husband, was still in D.C. at the time. So I know he, he couldn't help. And my grandfather was close, but he was old. <laughs> he can't hook up a trailer. Anyway, so I get to College Station, and I remember pulling in, and it was probably 9 o'clock that night, and he had tried to call me several times that day. And I thought, I'm hauling him back, and I'm just going to rip a new new one. He won't remember anyway, but I need to do it. So I called him back. No answer called him again. He answered. He was clearly at a bar. And I said, I guess you just don't really care if I I've worked so hard for this and you're supposed to help me and you're not here. And he said, well, I'm coming right now. Well, then it dawned on me. Oh my God, it's nine o'clock and he's in Midland. He's going to, or he's in Midland. He's going to drive eight hours drunk to come help me. That can't happen. So his wife at the time called me later and said, there's been an accident." and he had run himself into a pole. And that just started this whole, I mean, I could from that point forward, nothing was good. So he went to Laha, we kind of, I guess his attorney at the time, fake told him like, here's the deal. When you live in a small town like that and you're a upstanding community member, whether you're drunk or not, you're gonna get off. And he had already gotten off on several DWIs, but this time he wasn't getting off. And all I could think of was, please God, don't let him kill somebody. Let him go to jail, sit there, but just don't let him kill someone else. Cause I knew that would just kill him anyway. So he sat in the drunk tank, his lawyer got him out and said, you've got a choice. You're not getting off on this one. So you can either go to Laha or you can go get your DWI. So of course he went I was so angry with him at that time and moving up to DC with a new job that I didn't speak to him and he came home and was drinking like the next day. I knew it wasn't going to work. So that was the first time flash forward. We, you know, as any, I think person knows when you've got a relationship with the drunk, like you just keep hoping that maybe if I do something, they're going to change. So Forgiveness, which was never actually really real forgiveness. It was more like, okay, just put that in the past and let's move on and see if I can do something else that makes him want to get sober or want to stop drinking, make that choice. I spent three years in DC working at the white house and it was so fun and one of the best parts of my entire life. And I wanted him a part of it. So he'd come visit and we'd take him to the Christmas party and he loved it and it was special and he thought it was really cool. And then we married um, moved back to Dallas in 2009 and things started to really pick up. Then I, my father-in-law who I'm very close to was a Methodist minister and um, several months into our marriage, he, my dad called Jim, my father-in-law and made the comment. If something happens to me, I want you to do my funeral. And Dad called and said, I just want to let you know I had this conversation. I'm like, you're 59 years old. Why are you talking about if something happens to you? Like, what's going on? He had just gotten another divorce, um, was living in a small apartment that was really just sad, you know, and my mom had just remarried. And I think that was kind of the tipping point that he realized he really had lost it all. But again, never lost his business was a very, very successful oil and gas finance guy. Like it just, I mean, his rock bottom was never going to be through his job. So I remember calling his brothers saying, okay, something's going on here and we have one chance and it may not work, but I'm not going to live the rest of my life without trying to do something, even if it's for myself. So we went to see a couple of counselors. I mean, looking back on it, it's so stupid, but like, this is just, you're desperate. You don't know what to do. Um, I ended up calling our church Highland park Methodist for some direction and nobody could help me, which is another story. And then finally got a hold of someone who could, it was an intervention specialist. I'm like embarrassed to even say it out loud. So we did it. We flew to Midland. He helped this specialist helped us identify, um, a treatment center in Florida that specialized in men over the age of 55. Cause one of the things I can remember my dad saying was I'm not going to Laha my, th- this place is so it, you know, blah, blah, blah. My roommate was a drug addict. Like I don't do drugs. You know, it was like a total separation of reality, which I just kept looking back on is so funny, but anyway, so we did an intervention. Both brothers came, John came, my sister came and we had the police department outside with their lights I had a friend that like threw me a solid and sat out there with the lights on to scare him a little bit. And we woke him up. He was a hunter. John took the guns. My uncles and I said, you don't have a choice. You're going or you're going to jail because we're worried for your safety.
0: Are you or someone you love struggling with the inability to stop drinking? At the Magdalen House, we believe that alcoholism, education, and recovery is crucial to helping more alcoholic women and their families recover. Our staff is available to provide speakers to the public who will discuss the disease of alcoholism, how to help someone who may be struggling, and more available resources. To request a speaker, please visit our website, magdalenhouse.org slash education.
1: And he got his stuff together, and I flew him. To West Palm beach and checked him in and served as his medical point of contact, which I'm sorry, no 25 year old should have to do particularly when you have absolutely no idea what's going on about the disease. And I can literally remember sitting on the side of my bed thinking every single phone call was him dead. And I, it's just It's the the feelings of that are just so poignant and they still are just so real. And I remember talking to one of the counselors um, and it was the handling center. They did a wonderful job. Um, At the time they had some new kind of brain scanning capability that could, I mean, I, I think it's probably pretty common now, but this has been like 10 years ago. So, you know, that really looked at his brain to see what parts were active and what weren't. Um, considering he had played football for so long, they were, you know, a little bit concerned about frontal lobe damage and he left the day before the scan. And I remember my uncle picked him up and I thought, okay, that's it. I, I have to break ties because you have this whole, for my whole life that I can remember starting when I was 13, you consumed it, every anxiety, every fear every resentment, every feeling of anger started with your drinking. And it became very clear, very quickly. If I go down this path, this is gonna consume my, it's like, I, I mean, it's so, such a cliche, but when you try to rescue a drowning person, you drown. I could see that coming for the first time. So we didn't speak um, for, that was in October just so happens my younger sister was diagnosed with a pretty severe heart condition, um, that we didn't know about for a long time then like two weeks later. So I did have to see him a lot just because he'd show up for appointments, but you know, he wouldn't speak to me either. He was so mad and it was just a very difficult, tense and painful period. And I saw him for the last time on Christmas. It was my, I think John and I's second Christmas as a married couple. And he wanted to cook steaks. He loved cook steaks. So we went over to his little apartment and he cooked steaks and we played Monopoly. And I can remember thinking, you can't even pick up your arm. Like he was so frail and so you know when they're you you see people who their skin is so dry, you know, and I could see physically he was declining so much. Like his teeth were breaking, like it was just heartbreaking. And I thought I can't see this anymore. It's beginning to color my whole world view. And that was the last time I saw him. And looking back on it, I knew, I know there was nothing I could have done. I and I ha, And I told you this the other day, like I have absolutely no guilt that I did literally everything we could do. And I think that's a really important point for family members. At some point you just have to do what you need to do to ensure that whatever happens, recovery or not, you can lay your head down at night and know I loved them enough to try everything at some point it just becomes about what you need um and I think that's a really pivotal point to get to although very hard so
0: well I know what ended up happening with your dad but yeah people who are listening don't so do you mind talking about
1: oh sure yes so uh, um it my sister was in Midland with her boyfriend at the time. And I was in Dallas and we lived in a little house in Lockwood Um, and I got a phone call. It was the last, I think it was February 25th from my uncle and he had shot himself. And I think I knew he was probably never gonna get better. And I had feelings just based on things he had said in the past that this was always an issue but I just couldn't believe it. It was, it, it was just, I don't even have, nobody has words for it. You know, it's um, shocking. Even when it's not, (laughs) it's painful, even when you're angry at him. Um, Mostly because things just go so unresolved. And I can remember being obsessed for weeks. Like, did he leave a note? Which he didn't, which is just exactly the kind of person he was. He wasn't going to talk about it. I can remember even Lisa asking me, well, was he sober? And I said, I don't think so. He'd been at the club all day. I think he was drunk, which is an anomaly in itself. And, you know, I remember that time having to rely so heavily on my mother who'd been divorced from this man and she took care of everything. Cause we were in just such a state of deep embarrassment and anger and having to walk into a church for a service that he did this to his two daughters. I just, couldn't wrap my head around it which increased my anger more and resentment I mean I was so mad like and I think the crazy part is I I was I had lived that way for as long as I can remember it was just degrees of it and this was a degree of pure rage you know and when you don't understand something there's no way to work through it Mm -hmm. and so um Yeah. It's been 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago in February and man, I was angry.
0: What was your um, opinion or view on on alcoholics um, after your dad died or alcoholism?
1: I thought it was a choice. Same thing. I thought he was a terrible human. What kind of man could do this to his family? I mean, he lost everything. I mean, the guy had more friends, any person I've ever known, two brothers who were his best friends and loved him. He had money. He'd had a wife who loved him. He had two daughters who adored him. Like, who does that? You know? And at some point, I didn't care why. I just focused on what he did, right? Instead of what he was and who he had become versus what, who I knew he was. I was so mad and so angry. And I, there was a whole lot of other stuff happening. My, he died in February, my grandmother, who was very close to died a month later. And then in May, I found out I was pregnant. Whoops. And then best whoops ever. And then um, in June, my sister became so ill that we had to end up putting her on a heart pump. And that just took it down a whole nother level. So as you can imagine, I'm feeling like my entire world is imploding. um, And I have absolutely no understanding why. And quite frankly, at that point, I didn't want to know. I was just mad. And my poor husband, who was like, it was this woman I married, you know, um, and I had a new baby in December of that year. And it was a year of literally up from hell um, until he was born. And then I remember feeling like, okay, I got to do something. I got to get out and I got to be a part of something and just don't deal with this stuff. Like it doesn't matter. He's gone. Nothing can come of this anymore. It's over. Um, I ended up joining a Bible study at my church. Just, this is so funny, but it's so true. And everybody at that Bible study would tell you like the whole point we went was because they had free childcare for an hour and a half. And you could just sit there around the table and talk to people and cry and nobody's going to judge your hormones or your nursing style or whatever. And I remember signing up and I met two of my very best friends and there are a lot of them actually. And one semester I walk in and there's a woman named Lisa Cronkey standing at a whiteboard and she stands up and says, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I remember thinking, what? alcoholics aren't recovered. They're either in recovery and you don't look like an alcoholic. I think at that time she maybe had five years and I know she had four boys and I was like, "Well, I'd be an alcoholic too as a joke. And then she started in on Richard Rohr's breathing underwater and that text with her commentary changed my entire life. It just gives me goosebumps to think about like how simple it was and how, but how profound (laughs) the funniest part was my sister had ended up at that point, either having a heart, I think she'd already had her heart transplant. And in the middle of the transplant, she had a massive stroke and was basically unable to eat, talk, walk. And my mom became her full-time caregiver. And it was, as you can imagine, extremely taxing. And so I was the like proxy caregiver. And worried about my mom had an 18 month old and it was just not easy and i can remember thinking my mom needs a lot of help like she is really torn up about all this and i need to call lisa and let's meet to talk about this book do you
0: mind telling us what breathing underwater is what the mm.
1: book is for those listening yeah no so little context my mom is an allen honor she had always tried to get me to Alatine. To read the big book. And I was like, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. It doesn't make any sense. This book is too hard to read. Stupid. Right. But then I got Richard Rohr's book and it basically was like, look, the 12 steps apply to everybody's life. Alcohol may not be your thing, but maybe anger is. And it just kind of blew my mind. He's a a former, um, he calls himself a recovered Catholic but the way he was able to, I mean, the big book is based on the book of James, right? So the way he was able to correlate the biblical teachings that I would known my whole life and did believe in and understood with the 12 steps was mind blowing. Um, and it was short and it was like one of those books where I'd have to like read a passage, highlight it, put it down, come back later, read it again, uh, circle it put it down, read it again. Like it's just, it was just so powerful and so um, mind-blowing and accessible to anybody. You don't have to be able to read the big book to understand its meaning and apply it in an everyday life, which to me was really amazing only because too, like, look, when you've got young children or whatever your life looks like, if you're not in like an active recovery and it's, I think too, for family members, like we're not in a place where our life has to be saved physically necessarily, although I think I needed my life to be saved. So sometimes we don't have the wherewithal to sit there and read these long chapters, but this book gave me an understanding that I could use practically every single day. That made sense to me as a family member and not even an addict. So, um, Everybody, I, you know, I, I think I keep like 10 copies here at a time and just hand them out to people because it, it, it's just, it's wonderful. So that's the book. And that's what she taught me on. And I loved it.
0: Awesome. Okay. So you meet Lisa, you go through this class, which is essentially the 12 steps in a group setting, correct? Mm-hmm.
1: That's right.
0: Okay. And so you have this amazing experience, right?
1: Right. Total. Mm-hmm.
0: um and so you are now we're now at the place where like oh my my mom has to have this okay and so then what happens
1: yeah so I reach out to Lisa directly so the way she did this was she was you know we had homework we would go home and do it ourselves and she would you know fifth step and all that kind of stuff up on the whiteboard with examples from women in the class and so I was like I kind of want to do this like on an individual level or my mom does hold up. My mom needs this on an individual level. And she was in Dallas at the time. So I called Lisa and I was like, would you meet with my mom really needs a lot of help. She's really struggling with my sister, blah, blah, blah. I mean, how, what denial anyway, it's like, makes me laugh thinking about it. So we go in and sit down in the church basement with Lisa. And she starts talking to us for about 15 minutes. And part of the reason why I, I love her so much is like, she does not mince words. And I appreciate that so much. I'm like, just give it to me straight, right? I don't want, I don't need any BS. Like, just give it to me the way it's supposed to be. And she looked right at me and, or my mom after about 15 minutes and interrupted the conversation. It was like, hold up, Marsha, you were fine. And she looked at me and goes, Kate, and you need a lot of work. And I remember thinking like, who is this? You know, I'm just going to say it, bitch. Like, I mean, who are you to tell me that I need a lot of work? And my mom laughed because as an Al-Anon person, I think she got it. And so I met with Lisa the next week and I'm not kidding. She changed my life in 30 minutes and I will never forget her explaining the disease model of the allergy to me. And I was like, nobody's ever said that to me before. That makes sense. But the thing that she said to me that literally changed my entire perspective on the way my dad is or was, was, you know, I was telling her some resentment, you know, it's all about me. It's all about me. I mean, how he made me feel after he didn't come talk to me after graduation blah, blah, blah. And she looked at me and she goes, have you ever considered that maybe he left because he knew he couldn't stop drinking and it was the only way he could protect you. And I remember it was like your life kind of flashes before your eyes and you're like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. He knew he couldn't stop and he knew he was causing pain. And in his mind, the only way he could love us was to stay away. And that was like, I don't have any other word, but transformative. It's like, it brought me out of this place of deep rooted anger and mistrust and judgment and vilifying him for something. He really wasn't into this place of beginning to understand one, the disease of it two that it wasn't a choice. It was physically necessary for him to drink and three, he loved me, you know, and he loved me in the only way he could. And man, that is a powerful understanding of forgiveness, I think, you know, and it all was just about the perspective, you know, it was just all about learning that it's not a choice. It's not a morality problem. They just have to have it because they're an alcoholic. And so it really, I mean, it's changed my whole life. So,
0: so. What happened after that?
1: Yeah. I was so blown away that I, it's kind of like somebody who becomes a new Christian or whatever. And they're like, I just need to know more. Right. And furthermore, I think the part that was really awesome is I think a lot of times I had been to several Al-Anon meetings and it's just a whole bunch of people sitting around talking about their family member and how bad they are. And I never really got much out of it, except just um, ver- like validation that I was okay to be angry. Right. And I know not all of them are like that. That was just my experience with the ones I went to. But um, to have an actual conversation with an alcoholic who's made it out on the other side for a family member was tantamount to my understanding of it, right? Lisa wasn't a bad person. You're not a bad person. Y'all are some of the best people I know, people I want to be friends with and I love. And so if you can be that in recovery, you certainly weren't that in active addiction either right so I think for family members or for me in particular that was a really big I'd never talked to somebody who'd in in open terms about how they got to that point in their testimony about it I mean it's not unique right it just so happens my dad didn't make it that far so I was so intrigued by her that I just kind of really I just wanted to be her friend <laughs> it's like this Lady's going to think I'm crazy, but I really just want to be your friend. And I just probably bothered her to death and learned as much as I could. I remember I one of my friends in this Bible study was struggling with some stuff too. And I remember introducing her to Lisa and she kind of felt the same pull, right? Um, we ended up going to a PPG meeting and just slowly became... Internally, I was so excited that I kind of wanted to just live at her house, but like I was trying to not scare. So just slowly became more integrated into this community. And when I say community, I mean like the physical community, but also the community of understanding and um, studying and um, processing, right. And doing the steps and, and I really kind of stopped thinking my thinking of myself. I was not a victim anymore. I was, I just wasn't like, I, kind of considering myself in recovery too, which I know is a totally different, I mean, it's all the same thing, right? We're all going toward the same thing. And that's what I also loved about PPG was like, I could sit in that meeting and listen to other alcoholics talk about things that applied to me too, that even though I don't have an an addiction and they were talking about the book, they weren't talking about their problems. Like Lisa always says, you know, if your kids can make you sober, there wouldn't be a drunk mother in the world, right? Yeah, so that's kind of how I got into this. And the further I got into it, the more I started to realize, okay, wait, my dad's legacy is so much bigger than what he did, right? Just because someone didn't beat it, or just because they're not beating it now, doesn't mean you can't use that to go talk and help someone else. And so the best way I know how to heal my hurt and my pain is to go talk to somebody else, just like y'all say, you know, let me share my story to see if maybe someone's in the same place. But even in death, the understanding and seeking truth doesn't end. And there's hope for recovery even after they're gone for the family member, which I think is a huge thing that nobody talks about. Like they may have lost their battle, but you didn't, so. Yeah, um,
0: so Obviously, you had this huge perspective change on alcoholics and alcoholism. And one of the things that I asked you about, and obviously, I mean, you work for the Magdalene House, and you, yeah. so you have to have had that change. But one of the things that you said yesterday that I really liked was that how like this is your way of kind of like making it right to your dad. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So I think something after I finally, you know, years of working through all this stuff, we had another personal situation with my in-laws that happened. And um, I watched my husband and my um, brother-in-law, instead of getting angry, just kind of love through it. And I thought, I wonder what would have happened if I had done that instead of being angry, right? If I had, if I had known, I think this is just so common. If I, if I had known what I know now, how would I have done something different? I think about that a lot. Like what if instead my response had been grace and a focus on myself instead of focusing on what he's doing to me, right? Which he actually wasn't even doing anything to me. It's just how I perceived it. Like we all would, but, you know, learning that asking those questions, I think is a good thing because I think it shifts your perspective from guilt and I wish I could have done something better To Okay, I couldn't do it to him, but how can I help somebody else do it? So I don't even know that it was like a conscious thought, but the more I think about it, it's like, okay, I can't change the way I responded to my circumstances in the past. And I don't necessarily feel guilty about how I acted because I didn't know any better and I was really a child. But I'm grateful that I understand now. If it happens to me again, a better way to respond. And I think, I you said something yesterday that I had actually hadn't heard of—a graveside amends. Like, I don't think I—I I think my graveside amends is this every day, right? Extending his legacy beyond the grave and his persona as an alcoholic to instead helping other family members understand that it's going to be okay and that these people love them no matter what happens. And to me, that's a way bigger way to, I guess, resolve and to apologize for my misunderstanding of the whole situation than it would be just to stand there and tell him, you know, I think words are words and these are actions and actions really speak louder than words. So, I mean, that's the whole point of the last step. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I yeah. love you so, much. Thank you. So how is your life today? How like internally, externally, since you have had this perspective change, how is your life today?
1: Hey, look, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think about this a lot, you know, it's not like all of a sudden one day you're healed and like, no, it's a process and it's a daily. And for me, a choice. Right. Um, But I think the deeper you throw yourself into understanding what the struggle is, what the disease is, what the recovery looks like, the shame is removed. And that's the other thing I think is so important. I, I really do believe he'd still be here today. If, somebody had told him not to be ashamed. Shame killed him, nothing else. And that's part of what this message is so powerful about. It's like, why are you ashamed? It's a mental mental illness. Like, yes, do you do things you wish you didn't do? Well, sure. So do a lot of other people with different kinds of mental illnesses, right? And they don't get thrown out on a street corner and hurt, you know. Now with that said, there are ways to fix it. I don't know. I just feel like I'm much whole, more whole person now than I was before. Don't get me wrong, I still struggle with anger. Anger's my biggest thing. I still struggle with resentment. Um big time in many different areas, right? But at least I can maybe now identify it. And I'd be lying if I said like I still don't feel at times it's anger. It's not necessarily anger with him. It's just, you know, I've got two beautiful boys who love to hunt and fish and one of mine is like the best little football player we've ever seen. And we have no idea where it came from and it must've come from him, right? So there are moments like that where I'm like, dad gum, I wish you were here to see it. But instead of feeling like I can't talk about him, it's a joy to talk about now. I mean, he gave me a gift. He gave me this ability to, I always call it cut the bullshit, you know, clear the bullshit. Like you and I, I haven't known you that long and I already love you because there's an intimacy there that I couldn't get with somebody else and that's a huge gift, you know? So Lisa always used to, she still says, sometimes it still bothers me. And I can tell her that it does, you know, God made me an alcoholic for a reason. I believe that his alcoholism is a reason why I, my life is rich today. And that's a huge thing to say, because that shifts the focus away from it being, um, unobtainable to, and just this awful gross word to something that, it's like, I beat cancer, you know, it's the same concept. And I think we need to start talking about that more, particularly from a family standpoint, whether your family member is recovered, understands it, doesn't make it, it doesn't matter. You still have the chance to shift the perspective on it, which is so powerful.
0: And I love you so much.
1: Thank You're so you special.
0: Wonderful. Um, I think there's been a lot of really amazing stuff that's been said. But is there anything that you would want to tell a family member who might be listening that either you wish you would have known, or just anything else that you think is important to tell them?
1: One, I say, if you're struggling with yourself or anybody else, go pick up Richard War's book, like yesterday. It will change your life. Find somebody who can explain what's happening. For me, I needed information. I needed to understand why was he doing this? Like, why am I not good enough? It became very clear very quickly that this was not about me. And I was making it about me. And when you make it about you, you can't see the truth in somebody else. Right. So go find somebody and don't be afraid to talk about it. I I feel like I was so embarrassed for so long. Like, I didn't want people to know that my dad was drunk or whatever, like, come on, everybody knows somebody in this world who's struggled with it at some level, whether they're in active addiction or not. Like maybe they're just a habitual user and it makes you uncomfortable. Go talk to somebody about it. It's just, there's call our, if you've got a question, call our hotline. Like we'll tell you exactly what to do, which is what the beauty of what we do. It's like, I mean, we're standing out there shouting from the mountaintops. Here's how to fix it. You know, here's the solution family members in addicts alone. Like it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful resource. And the last thing I would say is just remember, you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Maybe they don't make it statistically most don't. And that's a hard thing to hear, but you got to put the work in to be able to live through anything and don't give them power. Like you, 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 gotta giving them power actually facilitates their problem. Take the power away and put it back in you, you know? Yeah. I think that's what I'd say.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for spending the last hour with me. And, Girl, um, it's
1: been the best part of my whole week. Thank you. Yes. You're just thank so you cute. I just love you to death. I love you too.
0: And thank you for everything you do for the Magdalene house and everything that you've done for me on a personal level.
1: So. Oh my gosh. It's don't mention it. It really is. It's, it's, it's the best place in the world to work. And it's such a gift. It is. I've been given a gift and I've got to give it to somebody else, you know?
0: All right. Well, have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you. This podcast is from the Magdalene house, a recovery community for alcoholic women, we are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost.
0: You can learn more
1: and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.